cliffcentral.com. All right. Good morning and welcome to the Burning Platform. It is what we do on a Thursday and we try to find the smartest and most informed and most interesting and most analytical people we can and people who are analytical in a particularly useful way. And the grand dame of South Africa's journalists, I, I would like to think that that's what she is. I certainly think she's done an incredible job of reporting over the last couple of years, managing newsrooms over the last couple of years. She is also, while all of that's been going on, been writing book after book, and all of them are absolutely terrific. She is none other than Feriel Hafiji, who joins us today. Pumi and I have both got our copy of The Days of Zondo. Feriel, it's so good to see you again, and thank you for this excellent and seminal work. Thank you very much, Gareth, and for your kind words. I'm going to put it on a poster. Good morning, <laughs> Pumi. Look forward to chatting to you today. <laughs> so, Feriel, it, it really is um, It's it's yes. great to see someone who can, you know, this is why we, re- we need journalists, and, and I know that this is something that you've been working hard on apart from all the other things you've been working on for the last couple of years you've you've done a tremendous job of of reminding people of why journalism matters and your book is a condensation and a compilation of what the average south african either might not have the time to do in terms of the the heavy lifting and the and the paying attention to detail and the mapping out of how the commission has done its work and what exactly has happened or it might be stuff that is just too complicated for us and you've gone and you've condensed it into this book, which really gives us. And Pumi's a total Zondo Commission nerd, by the way. So she had to watch. Oh, are you pretty? Oh, <laughs> excellent! Pumi, oh, Pumi. I'm so happy to hear. <laughs> we ran for how how many years was it? We always had three, like a little snippet of days, days of Zondo, all of the okay, shenanigans okay. happening. So I really enjoyed reading this book because Thank it you. reminded me of some of the things that I had forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and also I think gave a, a true roadmap of what, what went down, what went down at the commission. And there are still many more questions than there were answers given. And there couldn't have been answers to everything. But I think that yes. what the book does is it really does lay out in an almost straight line some of, of what we should really be paying attention to. Thank you. Um, so Which is what I'd like to ask you. To absolutely. what end? To what end? Mm. You know? I, I suppose the book started beginning to look at those questions. So I looked at a lot of people doing the perp walk and try to capture photographs of them in court because I think things start to, have started happening. So there is an end. But I think really coming to a point of justice or us feeling like that was a lot of waste of money and actually it's just continuing and continuing. I thought the process was valuable to document and also to remember the heroes who really took their lives into their hands often Mm -hmm. um, to give us the foundation of that story. And then obviously the journalists who brought us the Gupta leaks and a week after week after week of revelations before it became, before it was institutionalized into the public protector's investigations. One of the best things about this book is these, these beautiful um, 
infographics that you've got in there, and, and you mentioned the heroes. Let's not forget the big hero in the story is the man who commissioned this commission, and that was Jacob Zuma, <laughs> ironically. <laughs> you know, he's the person who put it into play. But you do talk about journalists. You talk about uh, Skwanati Manchansha, and you talk about the Gupta yes. Leaks team, the SABC8, uh, the, the guys who you work with at the Daily Maverick and Amabungane, uh, News24, Branko from the Daily Maverick, and obviously lots of whistleblowers, you know, great people, Temba Maseko. Um, we've got uh, incredible people here that have, that have done a tremendous amount to help us, Brian Curran, obviously, to help us understand what was yes. going on. Ethel Williams, who's been a guest on this show a couple of times. And I was pleased to hear the president on Monday. So if, we don't mind, if you don't mind, can we start there? Because it yes. seems we can start at the end and work backwards. So the president called a family meeting, and everybody thought it was going to be about ESCOM. Um, a few people seem to have known that this was a, what it was. And I think maybe we're all sitting here going, okay, look, the president's between a rock and a hard place. His own party is busy trying to figure out where it's going to go in the next election. There are massive factions at work and, and moving the whole time in the ANC. Was he between, uh, was he forced to make a call on this and to seem like he's going to act upon it? Maybe he will. We can only hope. Um, and, and do you feel that this comes from a, a kind of a long game analysis of what Cyril's done in his presidency, which a lot of people have started saying can't possibly be the, the truth. You know, he, he didn't have a, a plan all along. Um, or is this just desperation because he's also realized like if he doesn't act quickly, his enemies will. And, and maybe that's forced his hand in all of this. He's got the commission. The commission's given him all the, all the reports. It's comprehensive. Judge Zondo's done an amazing job. What made the president call that meeting and talk to us for two and a half hours the other day? Sure. So he was, um, he was bound by the terms of the commission to respond in a specific period. And that period was, um, October the 22nd, um, at, at midnight on oh. Saturday. And so he had to, uh, tell us on, on Sunday. But what was important is he could have taken much longer. This commission um, was delayed seven times. So my own view was the president was only going to tell us his response in about April next year. Actually, he met his deadline. And if you read the 77 pages, it's a very considered response. We can argue with parts of it, as, I, as I'm sure we will. Mm -hmm. But for me, it felt like the continuation of a long game um, that he he continues to play or bat um, in very, very trying circumstances. So on, on Sunday night, uh, Gareth, I thought he looked exhausted because I realized he had just come out of a weekend meeting where the ANC really is, is taking scythes to many parts of this commission's work, saying, the judge overreached. He had no right to go there. There's absolutely no way we're doing it um, away with CADA deployment. He's got people named in the commission who are top of the slates that are emerging hmm. for the December conference of the ANC. So I thought under the circumstances, it was a work that he was bequeathing to the people, to the institutions and say, yeah, I've done it. You need to run with this now. You, uh, you know, you say you, you say he looked exhausted. I think our yes. president always looks exhausted, and, <laughs> and maybe he also he also always looks just you know disinterested. I think more than exhausted, which uh, 
is one of the things that, again, over the weekend, there was so much flurry of presidents talking over the weekend. And it was, there really you know, was. All of them eh, had to go. Yeah. <laughs> Shame, I missed Ivy Matsipika Saburi. But one of the things that, that I absolutely loved in, in your book, which where it starts, is reminding us also that in the almost 30 years of ANC government, government we have had a scandal. Yes. Yeah, like there's no shortage of commissions. There's no, like we have had scandals and I had even forgotten about the Sarafina 2 scandal. Remember Sarafina and Moteo housing scandal. And when I saw that in your book, I was, I was just so mad because really and truly what, what the commission also demonstrated i think for for some of us that you know don't have the the very short memory that most south africans seem to have is it demonstrated how ingrained in this party scandal fraud and theft and treachery actually is i mean you talk about how in the late in in the list I'm, i cannot even believe that we are having a conversation that says zuelim kize could stand to be the president. This is a man who, at the height of a pandemic, is part of stealing hundreds of thousands of rands that were meant to help. And and here we're having a conversation well, that says I mean, this man could become in, the president in, of the party. In, the, in the president's office, there were, his, spokesman, his spokesperson was, was stealing money, remember? I just want to play you a clip of Tabo Mbeki that was circulating yesterday. I think Herman Mashaba put this out on Twitter. And it might be worth just watching what he has to say because this is quite scary. I'm not sure when he said it, but it's certainly applicable to exactly what you guys are talking about. Take a look at this quickly. This is former president Tabo Mbeki. We agreed with them. We didn't campaign. The reason we didn't campaign is because if we campaigned and won, we would put in authority in the leadership of the municipality. People who are criminals. They are ANC, but they are the, our leaders. That's why we decided not to campaign. We said we can't. We can't campaign for the ANC to win because the ANC to win in, in Newcastle means to put a, a criminal there in the leadership of the municipality. We can't do that. And a fellow is talking, he says, you know, these people of ours, comrades, who have been in charge of this municipality, they actually have on their payrolls, Izinkabi, you know, the professional killers. They are, they are paid monthly. So they are held in reserve, so that one day I'm going to say go and kill so and so. They say it's they are actually paid by the municipality, our people, the retainers. Now that's, I mean, it could be old, but it's still relevant to what we're talking about about these lists and these criminals on the lists that Ferial mentioned. Yes. You know, here's Tabo Becky saying Izinkabi, the professional killers, have been on the payroll when they went. To, to campaign for the municipality in Newcastle. And I'm sure that this is happening in other places too. We know Pumalanga has had more than its fair share of political killings. Um, yes. Parts of KZN too. So the ANC is so rotten from within. 
that it's very, very difficult to imagine that the president's going to have any support for this or that Judge Zondo won't have an uphill battle even being heard in some parts of the ANC. So, um, I mean, it, it's true what the former president said there. In KZN, you've got uh, business forums. Those are the, the people who shake down um, building sites, fiber installations, etc. Um, those people, they, there's a definite um, parallel with them and with the leadership of branches in the in in the ANC and KZN. So that's that's the province where you see the pattern most acutely, but also. Um, in the northwest and and then in Mpumalanga. So definitely criminalization of branches of the ANC, tenders put their way, um, absolutely. So therefore, I think that any action out of this document is going to have to come from Andrea Johnson, the head of the investigating directorate, um, and her team. And it's going to have to come from civil society keeping a very clear look at those um, recommendations and almost treating them as a report card that that we, and I include myself in civil, civil society, have to keep going back to. Because I do think you're going to see um, at the ANC conference come December, a lot of smack spoken about this report um, and also um, people pushing against the step-aside rule in the ANC and then much rhetoric about how the judge has overreached and done things he wasn't asked to. Actually, if you read the terms of reference, he stuck very closely to them um, because he is a lawyer. As a a journalist, Farrell, and you say that... part of you include yourself as civil society yes. that has to keep watch and kind of be a guard against railing on the report when you were writing this book and also reporting on some of the days of zondo what were some of the things that even for you as close as you were were just beyond mind-blowing that this is what happened so much I could stay with you um, for a good while. Eh? Um, but I suppose the day that really taught me things was when um, Dudazani came, uh, Dudazani Zuma came to give testimony. Um, and he was here on quite serious allegations. You know, he's a business partner of the Guptas. Um, there were allegations that he had um, been the link man for the offering of bribes to um, to. to Kibisi Jonas and two other people whom he had brought to the Gupta mansion where one of the hapless brothers would offer them these enormous amounts of money. So he came that day to answer these serious questions. And what struck me that everyone at the commission, except the judge, was starstruck by him. People were like staff members who I'd seen being very correct lawyers coming around and asking for selfies. Um, So it's a little bit like the story of Edwin Sodi, one of the key figures in the free state, is I think we have um, created heroes of the people who lead these bands of capture almost. And I asked the judge about this and he said that we had, as, as a society, normalized the fruits of capture and the kind of uh, characters who lead it, the public ones we know very well. And for me, that was really interesting to learn. And then, of course, the sitting on the edge of my seat moments was Angelo Agrizzi showing us the videos of the money being counted in the nine vaults at Bosasa. Um, and then I was fascinated and compelled by everything that Noma and Goma 
told us mm. of what she knew because she Yo. had such a ring of authenticity wow. and and anger and peak behind it that it, it for her for me she was the key witness along with um Agritzi. Right? I'd forgotten about her, but my God, that was that was yes. earth shaking. Now I've got a clip of our favorite former president, uh, the one who is at the top of this pyramid of state capture. He was celebrating yes. just this week and someone took a video of him having a nice meal. I think it's a milkshake. I just want you to see this because <laughs> why not uh, celebrate? Pumi, you were saying last Thursday how thrilled you were to see him happy and dancing. And I did not say I was thrilled. No, 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 you no, no, people, no. I did not say I was thrilled. I, I was actually quite stunned no, that no, nobody you, said you anything other than how horrendous of him to be having I, such fun. I just want, I want you to enjoy this moment where... Gidlitigisa is enjoying himself a milkshake and, and, and some, some well-earned freedom. Take a look here. This will put a smile on your face. There he is. Look at him. There he is. He's got a, oh. a Coca-Cola. He's got a nice milkshake. I think, you know, look, he's relaxed. He's happy. It's just a very, you know, what a, a happy situation. Look at that. Hmm. Happy man, just having a good time. So I thought that was important, and we needed to reflect on that because he, he, at Suncoast Casino. Oh, he's nice. not. He's not. He's clearly not concerned about the uh, the Zondo report or about President Ramaphosa's comments on Sunday. Now, I mean, that's directly after that they released this video, which is just to say we don't care. This is not important to us, right? Absolutely. I mean, the day before the former president came to the Maslow in Santon and rambled on for hours, um, it was clearly an, in anticipation of the Zondo report coming out on uh, Sunday. I think what he was saying, the subtext of what he was saying to us is, don't even touch me because remember July last year. I mean that constantly well, is a, I mean, ju- a threat. Over July the last country. year, ju- July last year was an absolute failure. If it was meant to be some coup d'état, um, it, it dissolved and, and demolished itself under its own weight within seconds. I mean, it wasn't a particularly successful operation. It seems to have been very badly handled. And of course, our intelligence services. Um, could have done a much better job, as could our security services, our, our what do they call it, criminal justice system. But we were pretty, um, I mean, the country was, was for me, it felt like it teetered. Yes, it petered mm. out quickly, but um, it, it, was, a sh- it yeah. was a show of force. Huh? Yeah. Well, I, I have, there, there are two questions that I yes. have. And for real, I think you, you're possibly the, the only person that can help us of all the people we've had on this show. Why do does the media continue showing up to Jacob Zuma's press conferences? Why? No, Why is it given this platform? I thought I don't know if it's like shrunken newsrooms or. But as I was watching parts of the streaming on SABC, I wondered: Would the BBC have given Liz Truss open mic to just go on about? what had happened to and how awful everything was. Would you see CNN giving Donald Trump two hours to just roll on and rave and attack people? They would mediate that conversation if they do cover it. And there would be a critical lens um, if if they did cover it. And yet, yeah, I felt like he was just allowed, um, he uh, he was allowed to make it the national address that Mzonele Mani um, boosted it as on Mm. social media. 
Um, and and this was the third time. Are small. I know it keeps happening, huh? It, it, I mean, it was the third time. It was initially slated to be on Wednesday or Thursday, and th- yes. that got kind of cancelled at the last minute. And the next day, on the Friday, it was supposed to happen, and then they had technical to keep sending journalists. I was just like, wh- why do we give this man the time of day? We, he should be allowed to have a YouTube channel on YouTube, <laughs> but why must he be on on the national platforms? But also on the other side. The president rambled on also for two and a half hours and then didn't take any questions. Why do, why does the media allow him to not take any, you know, he should also be sanctioned. All the newsrooms should say, you actually have to take questions. You have to answer some questions or you're not going to, you must send us a press release. Must send out a press release. No, the way I've underseen it in newsrooms is, the Jacob Zuma Foundation puts out a, a press release or a notification and people run. It's, it's top of the agenda. I, I don't understand it. Um, I don't think you can say, okay, just ignore them because when I was at City Press and we used to cover Julius Malema, a lot of people would say, if you just don't give him the airtime, he'll go away. That, that wasn't true either because we live in a social media era now. But I did think that it needed to be mediated and understood and perhaps not to give him hours and hours of time because you don't see that happening um, on the better broadcasters. So. Well, um, I mean, that's a whole other thing because because now we have to talk about the NPA. And this is something I okay. – I, I mean – all the things that the president said, and I watched as much of it as I could stomach on Sunday before I, I eventually realized that I was going to run out of battery because I was experiencing load shedding, which many of many of the people in the country was, were, couldn't watch the speech. Stage four at the same uh, time. Hey, ridiculous. that was a story. So, Ferial, what, what happens now? Because the NPA have been nothing if not underwhelming for at least the entire time that, that we've had this current NDPP. You know, the, the, we've spoken about her God knows how many times on this show, and everybody's constant comment is like, when are we going to get some action? Is there any insight you can give us? Is there any good news? Is there stuff happening there? Are there good people who are being brought in to make sure that the net closes around some of these people? And are we eventually going to see some of them in orange uniforms? I know that these are the rantings of people who are impatient and expect immediate justice, and these things take time. But is there any hope at all in the National Directorate of Public, Public Prosecutions? You know, I think there is, but they, I do believe there is hope, and I, I can give you some n- numbers to to underpin that. At the launch of the of of my book in Joburg, Andrea Johnson attended. She's the boss of the investigating directorate. Now, if you want to see a no nonsense, you really don't want to meet her in court, woman then it's Andrea Johnson. So they've got 26 cases ongoing at the moment. And I think about uh, just 130 people, uh, linchpins of state capture who have been charged. And every so often you'll see them flashing across our screens. You've got uh, Brian Molefe, um, Anoj Singh, recently appended Salim Essa from his hidey hole in Dubai. Um, you've got McKinsey now adding added to that case. In Estina, you've got Ace Mahashule, um, 
regularly in court and using all his money there, but I see he's back on the agenda for the ANC conference as well. So cases have started. But the key question you get is what about the big fish? To be honest, I don't ever think we're going to see the former president, Jacob Zuma, back in court on state capture charges. Or otherwise, he's going to do exactly what he's done with the tiny arms deal cases. Um, I think people want to see the political mechanics like your Malusigi Gaba, etc. They want to see them caught and in orange overalls. I think that's going to take a while, but a lot is happening. Andy Motibi of the SIU has been phenomenal and perhaps not celebrated enough. Four billion rand back into SARS coffers docked from the people who were, were fingered um, at the Zondo Commission. So, so, so things have happened, and perhaps it's us as the media's job to kind of highlight that um, more often. We had a whole episode. We saw it happen. Sorry, Pumi, go ahead. So you, you just mentioned McKinsey being added yes. to one mm. of, of the cases, and we, we've watched uh, – through no small efforts, Lord Peter Hayne, what's yes. happened with Bain? Do you think that any <laughs> there'll be any kind of any retribution to global players like McKinsey, well, like the banks who the, have managed to get all of this money out of the country? Didn't the president say that they, they're going to outright ban some of these consulting firms from ever working with government again? Um, do you think that'll yes. happen? You know, the consulting firms are fighting back big time. Bain, for example, has been banned from government contracts. It's hired the most expensive lawyers in the country, (laughs) and it's hired Tony Leon's Resolve Communications to do the kind of political legwork to get this overturned because the contracts in South Africa are extremely valuable. They work Mm. for, I think, the biggest at the moment is the Sassel contract. McKinsey is still very much in the picture. Just before my book came out, uh, a South African official whom they'd hired to do spin for them phoned me and said, oh, I hope you're going to go easy on one of the big deals there, who is a South African guy, but now globally, uh, globally placed. So you can see they're working behind the scenes furiously. But um, last week, a book called When McKinsey Comes to Town came out. I just New finished York it. Times. Did, you, did you finish it? For, for me, wasn't it like it. a shocker? Um, and, and, and what has happened to the big players at McKinsey who were integral to what happened at Eskom here in South Africa and Transnet nothing. have yes. just... Zero. Moved away, given their given their pensions, all the money onto yes, them. Like uh, Vikas Sagar, the key guy here, yeah? real move and shaker, knew everybody, big pump hands, ch- mm-hmm. chap, um, lived the high life here. He was just paid off, and he started a very big fintech company in London. So there, there isn't really, they didn't feel to me real action by McKinsey and Bain, except for spin and for covering their tracks and for shutting up journalists. Eh? Yeah. Um, I, I do think that that is something that we that I am trying to watch very carefully. There's also, of course, uh, Swissport. There's the American aviation company, AAR. Um, they are the Chinese rail companies who are really fundamental to the story and sort of every so often i call up the chinese embassy and say you know that that eight billion or so that was 
taken out of our country? Have you done anything about that? And nobody ever answers, huh? Mm. For real, before I, I know we've got probably thirty seconds left with you, yes. with you, but something that I found quite fascinating early on in the introduction of your book, just talking about how apartheid capitalism was insulated yes. from modernization, and how moving into the new South Africa, that culture was just transmogrified into yes. a new language. I, I think, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? And that, you know, there's a need for a global rethink of how market powers work. Sure. People don't like it when I say that. Um, I think it's easier to, to think that state capture started with Jacob Zuma, it ended when he's gone and now it's all Okay, it's not. And I suppose what I learned by, by, by studying the process was how we didn't really shift how capitalism operates, its distribution of market power, and how do you and I understand that? Extremely high data costs, um, internationally high bank, uh, uh, banking fees, um, super profits and very high corporate pay. These are aspects that are under challenge around the world. And for me, it felt like we hadn't changed that modus. And so when the middlemen or the tenderpreneurs started doing it, we shouldn't be horrified because all the, the what they were doing was mirroring the practices that they had seen as they built their ambitions and their foundations. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was I was at a dinner last night um, that was hosted for for journalists, and um, Evita Bezaidnok was like the guest speaker slash entertainment, and 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 you know, Tani Evita always speaks a little bit of truth where you least expect it, yes. and said something along the lines of, "Well, you learnt a lot from the National Party ANC, and they really did, you know." Yes, the ANC learnt a, a lot of their tricks. They're very similar nationalist parties now. Yeah. Huh? And this cro- mm. this crony capitalism is not going away anytime soon. You can still see the way that big companies, um, the unions, and government interact in a very cozy fashion with each other, cutting out small businesses, the consumer, the middlemen, the ordinary people yes. of South Africa who are trying to make it make a go of it. So I think that's a valuable point. Yeah. Ferial, thank you so much. I'm sorry that thank we've you very uh, much. I'm sorry we've kept you a minute or so longer than we should have. The Days Not of Zondo book is available. If you haven't seen it already on the shelves, Ferial Hafiji is the author, along with Ivor Chipkin, and it is all about the Zondo Commission. It'll give you the best possible oversight. And, and concise view of what's been going on because really has been a long time, three years of slogging by poor Judge Zondo. He needs a holiday, don't you think? He does. Such, he's a kind guy. I don't think he's taking one. He's Chief Justice now. <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. Thank it's you, lovely Feriel. to be nice with to you. Nice to see you. There's Thank you. Feriel Bye-bye. Hafiji. Um, and, of course, you know Feriel Hafiji as a South African journalist and newspaper editor, editor of the City Press newspaper from 2009 to 2016. Previously, the editor of the Mail and Guardian and currently associate editor at the Daily Maverick. And that is her new book. So, Pumi, I know you've been waiting to chat to our next guest. I thoroughly enjoyed my first conversation with him. His name is Dr. Alan Mendoza, and he is back because of popular demand and because he was so erudite about explaining what was going on in British politics the last time we spoke to him. He's the founder and executive director of the Henry Jackson Society, and he directs analysis, research, focus, strategy, and development for the organization. The last time I spoke to him, Boris was about to be kicked out. And we had a really interesting discussion. Of course, a lot has happened since then. 
Uh, and we're on to Prime Minister number three since I last spoke to Alan. Alan Mendoza, it's good to see you. How are you, sir? Hi, Gareth. Yes, fine, thank you. Hope you're well, too. Very, very well. Uh, Pumi and I have been very keen to speak to you, and I'm glad that you could join us this morning. Uh, how many prime ministers are you expecting before the end of the year? <laughs> well, at least as many as the Queen, the late Queen, uh, saw through in her entire 70-year <laughs> reign, it looks like at the moment. No, no, before the end of the year, I think we're done. Uh, <laughs> I think we're done. All right. Well, let's start off with uh, Rishi Sunak, who's become the new prime minister this week. He, he went to see King Charles at Buckingham Palace, and now he's going to set up a, a government of his own. Um, of course, the Conservative Party is still in dire straits. Just give us a little overview of Mr. Sunak, where he's from. Tell us a little bit about him, how he differs from perhaps his two predecessors, and whether or not he's got any hope in hell of holding this together. <laughs> well, the, the last question is, is what everyone's asking. But, look, let's start with the, the facts. I mean, this is uh, the son of immigrants to uh, the UK. He is Britain's first Asian origin prime minister. So that's a major, major uh, transformation. Of course, his parents came from East Africa originally. So you might say there's an African connection there as well in that, in that way. Um, so quite, quite remarkable story. His parents, you know, arrived, worked themselves up. They were in the health service uh, and in, in various capacities. Uh, they provided for him. The education was key to what they wanted. He went to a very um, famous British uh, uh, public school, um, called Winchester, uh, and he then went on to a stellar sort of academic career uh, at uh, Oxford and then at Stanford, and then, of course, famously into a career in banking. So he's had a very mm. interesting um, upbringing uh, from not very much to quite a lot. He then, of course, uh, famously also has married the daughter of an Indian billionaire. Um, so that is, of course, a, a subject of some discussion. Mm. Became an MP fairly recently, only in uh, twenty. Uh, well, in twenty, I think it was twenty seventeen. So this is not a long, uh, or twenty fifteen. One of the two, but it's not a long time in Parliament before he actually uh, rose to the heights. He, he, of course, famously was our Chancellor during the COVID crisis, and as such, doled out billions of pounds to everyone um, to sort of you know, save uh, feelings through the pandemic. So he's really, you know, he's had an interesting background personally, educationally, um, from a family perspective, and of course, politically. Uh, now, he resigned from Boris Johnson's cabinet, did not win the summer leadership contest. We had that very unusual Liz Truss interregnum when uh, she <laughs> took over and he lost it. It looked like his career was over, in a sense. And then suddenly, he's back in, because basically everything he said would happen with Liz Truss happened. I don't think anyone realised it would happen as quickly as that. And now he's been turned to uh, by the Conservative Party in the hour of need, when the economy uh, looks particularly damaged as a result of maybe what Liz Truss tried to do to it. But also, of course, the global situation that's going on, the commodity shortages, the war in Ukraine, um, the hangover from COVID, the inflation, the problems that we're seeing in many, many different countries. Britain, of course, has. And he's got to put that back together again now. All right. So there are a few. There, now, sorry, Liz, say, Pumi, why go, do you, you think go. I have a question about the Liz Truss? Uh, mm. Why Liz Truss fell apart so spectacularly and so quickly? There are, there are many questions about Liz Truss. We can all, we've all been <laughs> But, I mean, she came in almost mirroring Margaret Thatcher, you know, so very similar policies, very similar stance and talk. So why did she fall apart so spectacularly? Because she wasn't mirroring Margaret Thatcher, that's why. So, um, you know, you, you and I might say we're mirroring Margaret Thatcher by doing X and Y, but that's 
how she came in is not how Mrs. Thatcher came in. And I think she took the wrong lessons from the Thatcher era. It is true that Mrs. Thatcher fundamentally transformed the British economy and transformed the way we were trying to do business in this country. But she didn't do it on day one of her positioning in, in Downing Street. It was a long-term project that took multiple years to, uh, to, to go through. And there was significant pain in that process um, a little bit in, into the start of it. But it wasn't pain because of the way that she handled things. There were all sorts of structural problems in the British economy that she needed to, to under, undergo and remove. Now, the difference between her and Liz Truss is that Liz Truss came in, basically, and said, right, Thatcher did this, X, Y, and Z. I'm going to do it on day one. But she had forgotten that you have to, if you like, win the confidence of the financial markets to do these things. Thatcher, in the early 80s, managed to do that with a careful style of how she was doing things. Equally, people forget now, but in the mid-1970s, Britain, amazingly, had to go to the IMF, and the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, bailed us out because we were essentially bankrupt. So they had already told us we have to do this, that, and the other. So when Thatcher came in, she was acting on IMF advice, basically. And so the markets were like, right, this is fine. This is what we've asked you to do, essentially. What Trust came in and did was actually long-term sensible, trying to restore the idea of growth into the economy, trying to cascade money down, trying to drive um, productivity. But the way she did it was completely wrong. She didn't bring anyone with her. She didn't check out the policies beforehand. And crucially, she didn't balance what she was trying to do on supply-side reforms and with tax cutting with the means to pay for those tax cuts. Mm. So she was essentially loading debt onto the economy. And that was not something the markets were going to appreciate, given the volume of debt already there. So it was a fundamental misunderstanding of what Mrs. Thatcher did, I think, that actually did for her in that sense. Yeah, it's interesting that the markets kind of came to bear there and people forget what an important force that is. Because when we talk about the markets, we aren't just talking about rich people with capital. We're talking about the, the consumers too, how much they're willing to pay, how much of an interest rate or an inflation rate they're prepared to accept. And people are taking a big hit at the moment, I mean, the cost of living crisis, as it's been named, is is foremost um, in every politician's or should be foremost in every politician's mind. I just want to go back to Rishi Sunak for a moment, because listening to you go through his CV very briefly, I mean, he sounds almost like the perfect candidate for the Conservative Party in some ways. He not only brings all of that elite institutional stuff which you need to have on your your resume in order to be taken seriously in the Conservative Party, but he also brings, you know, a little bit of kind of second generation immigrant, um, first ever person of color in that role, stuff that the woke people on the on the left like too. So it might be in some ways um, a bit of a fresh breath of air for the Conservative Party. Do you think he's got enough support within the party though? Well, I think I think you're right first about your prognosis. This is a really interesting departure and a number of firsts for the Conservative Party. You've got someone who clearly is experienced in uh, the economy, if you like. You know, mm. He's you know, held that position. He's had a background in it. Right. Um, he is at least steep, particularly at the time when there is a financial crisis, etc., economic crisis. So great, we've got someone who understands that at the helm. He's got all those other firsts as well. That's going to carry him you know, a certain amount of the distance. But you know, the problem for him was that he didn't win the last contest against Liz Truss. He lost it. So now he's come in because he's been proven correct, if you like. So there's some strength in that. But the Conservative Party has to look at itself very hard in the mirror and decide, are we going to get behind this guy who is the right man 
for this job right now. We, we can see that. And can we make sure he's the right man going forward as well? And that's a question they have to answer because they have basically removed two prime ministers in this year already because they've lost confidence in them. And Sunak is like sloppy seconds. I mean, he didn't win. He didn't win the vote. The other two dropped out. He's like sloppy seconds for them. Well, no, no. In this case, he, it's not the other two dropped out. The other two couldn't get to the vote. And that's quite a different point. Mm. They couldn't, they didn't get, have enough support among MPs to get to the vote. And this is actually very important. I think the problem that happened last time was the MPs were not able to express a clear preference in the way that they voted. As a result, Liz Truss started with a lot of enemies, basically, people who were not backing her. And she didn't continue this well. She, ha- she stacked her cabinet with loyalists, people who supported her, and sacked all her political enemies. Now, I don't mean to tell you that, but if you've got a lot of enemies in the first place and then you sack them all as well a second time, they're not going to warm to you. They're going to try and bring you down. What Rishi Sunak has done, quite cleverly, I think, in his cabinet picks, is to bring all the different factions to sit round the table. He may not like X and Y. He may not like the person's stance on this or that, but he's brought them round the table to sit in and join in the cabinet. And that, I think, gives him a much better chance than Liz Truss, and actually, uh, you know, the end of Boris Johnson, of making a success of this and binding everyone to his policies. And that's what you've got to do as Prime Minister, bind people to your policies. All right. All of this has happened without an election. We're not exactly sure how the British public feel about this. So it's an, an internecine battle in some ways in the Conservative Party. But what is happening with the rest of the political landscape? Have Labour even managed to take advantage of any part of this? Because the last time we spoke, Alan, you and I were both really quite shocked at how they hadn't managed to turn these obvious disasters in the Conservative Party into any kind of advantage for them for them in Labour. And has that changed at all, or is the Labour Party continuing its descent into stupidity? Well, actually, the, the, the Liz Truss uh, period was so damaging to the Conservatives that Labour had been able to take advantage in the sense the polls were showing remarkable advantages to Labour. I mean, we had polls that were 32, 33, 34 percentage point leads. Now, to, to, you know, that's better than what Tony Blair achieved in 1997, if you're thinking about polling leads. So what Labour has, I think, managed to do is establish itself as a viable opposition now. People have been willing to say, you guys are terrible, and we think that you're safe enough that we will vote for you. Because it's interesting they're getting the votes, not the smaller parties. So clearly people have decided in some way, shape or form, the Labour Party is a party that they could support, they're interested and willing to support. And that is, I think, a big change for Labour from where it was, say, six to eight months ago, uh, where, where I'm not sure that was the case. Now, the challenge is, can Rishi Sunak pull that, that lead back, number one? Is it a soft or a hard lead? Because it might just be a soft lead that was just in revulsion of what the Tories were doing. If it is, then he's really in business, and then Labour have got a problem again. Or is it something that's going to be baked into the political system now for the next two years, in which case Labour will win the next election? But on that front, Labour still have not told people essentially what they stand for. Um, and so I think a lot of this is actually soft support. Uh, for the Labour Party that could go back if Rishi Sunak does a really strong and good job straight away. So I think Labour have still a lot of work to do to convince the British people that they're a real competent and I should say positive force for government rather than just the other guys who are going to vote for because you are so terrible. I see that... Uh, <laughs> Sounds Rishi... like the problems we have here. Yeah, well, it's politics uh, is politics, isn't it? Yeah. Um, 
I see Rishi Sunak reinstated the fracking ban in a, in a massive government U-turn on Sky News yesterday. Um, and people are also concerned about his ties to the World Economic Forum and the fact that, you know, during COVID, we saw so many of these World Economic Forum deployees uh, all over the world acting like petty tyrants. Is there any concern around him behaving something like Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand? And what do you think of this fracking ban? Because clearly that is going to create an energy crisis on top of an energy crisis. So I think it's a shame that the fracking bans come in because um, we've all understood in recent months, I think, that energy needs to be uh, you know, kind of sought in whatever place you can find. If we have natural resources we can um, extract, we should be doing so rather than relying on external uh, supplies of gas and oil. It doesn't mean in the long term you can't change your mix or look at, you know, doing that. But the reality is that we are in a pickle. In fact, much of the world is in a pickle because we're having to import these natural resources. And as the argument was made recently, isn't it better if you're going to use fossil fuels anyway, isn't it better to do it at home rather than shipping it over and doing, you know, where you can at least regulate it in that way? Look, that said, I understand why he did it. He did it because he is, in answering the sense to the, to the previous question about, you know, elections, he has come in, um, the third prime minister in a year, and of course Labour are saying, you've got no mandate. Who are you? You know, the country elected Boris Johnson in 2019. Mm. What he has said is, no, the country didn't elect Boris Johnson. The country elected the Conservative Party and its manifesto pledges of 2019. Mm. And one of those manifesto pledges, to be fair, was no fracking. So what Liz Truss was doing essentially was changing that manifesto pledge that had been voted on by the British public. And I think what Rishi Sunak is trying to say here is, look, whatever the states of fracking, I have come to you on the basis of the 2019 mandate you gave my party. That's why I'm here, basically. So don't think I'm some bloke who's just been dumped into the, you know, number 10 Downing Street by anyone. I've actually come through that party that you voted for, and we're going to keep to the manifesto that you uh, voted for to give myself legitimacy. I think that's, you know, quite a, a powerful thing. And I don't think, actually, interestingly, I don't think he is going to be pushed around by anyone in the sense of he was very keen to open up the economy during uh, the COVID period. As you know, we had a big debate about how early do we open up, how late. And then the people who wanted it early won out here and took over from, if you like, the, you know, the, the sort of the health fascists who wanted everyone to be locked down forever. So right. I think actually his instincts on this are actually good and he's not interested in listening to, you know, the, the sort of the very hardline you know, forces who might want to keep people in check. He's interested, and he's always said he's interested in the idea of, you know, kind of economic freedom. But what he said is, and he's right again, we have to do it at a time the economy can actually allow for that rather than other ways. We've got to build the ground for doing it because right now in the middle of 10% inflation is not the time to run riot in this way. And speaking of kind of power as well, one of the things that we know he's already done is he's already had his obligatory call with Joe Biden and just talking about the kind of re restating Britain's uh, kind of commitment to sticking with America on this anti against Putin and also to support the Ukraine. By the way, I saw, and you I saw Biden, that I saw Biden call him Rushi Srinak or something because he didn't even get his name right the first time he said, we've got a new prime minister. I mean, the guy's just completely out of it. So what, what is this? You know, what is <laughs> what this? do you make of his stance right? with Ukraine and Biden's relationship? 
Well, obviously, the Biden relationship is very important for the UK, whether he's awake or asleep. I mean, we have to, you know, sort of uh, be dealing with the uh, with the US, uh, whatever's going on, because, you know, this is our indispensable ally. We do things together. The whole world knows the UK and the US tend to stand together. So it's very important you make the call to the US president to say, look, Britain is, is back in business. We remain, you know, here. We remain your ally and partner on all these aspects of of life, if you like, here we are willing to stand with you as usual in this kind of way. So it's, you know, hugely important. And I think it's particularly important that Rishi Sunak made that call because he's got very little experience in foreign and defense policy. If you look at his entire political career, it's been on domestic, it's been focused on domestic activity. But we're in the middle of a war in Ukraine, a sort of a, you know, a global war that involves obviously um, Vladimir Putin challenging the entire international system. So it's, it's, it's not only symbolic, but necessary for Rishi Sunak to you know, present his credentials in this case and say, no, no, don't think I'm going to do anything different. I, too, am going to follow the line of Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. And to be fair, the entire British political uh, you know, class across parties to say that what Putin has done is wrong. I will be pursuing uh, you know, sort of justice for Ukraine, and we will be doing all that we can to support that embattled nation in concert with our many allies who are doing the same. So it's a vitally important thing that he is you know, kind of sketched out his policy on this and obviously we're looking forward to what he might be doing in that area particularly a lot of eyes on the on the three percent pledge that Liz Trust made to raise defense spending to that level of GDP he's not guaranteed that yet it's going to be interesting to see whether he does guarantee it or not hmm. Hmm. All right. So, so Pumi also indicated the Russia-Ukraine situation. What is your take on all of that at the moment? I'm, I'm increasingly getting concerned that we're ratcheting it up. We're making it more and more aggressive on both sides. Uh, the West has been unequivocal about its support for Vladimir Zelensky and, and the Ukraine. And what, what is happening in Russia, obviously, is that they're becoming more and more like a bear backed into a corner. I don't see a way out of this. Do you? It's a, it's a very difficult situation in the way that you suggested, because um, I, I don't think there's any problem with the West standing up for Ukraine, given the free world is under assault, and we are the free world. We have to stand up for ourselves. We don't. History shows us that if, you, if the free world does not stand up for itself, the unfree world rolls it over, basically. And before you know it, you have the unfree world at your gates, basically. Better to stop it at its first infraction rather than its last infraction. Uh, you know, as uh, as Churchill once said, you know, the appeaser wants to feed the crocodile, hoping he'll eat him last, basically. Mm-hmm. That's the problem with appeasement. So we've got to stand up for that. And the Russian bear is poked into a corner, but it's been poked into a corner by its own idiotic activities. So it's the one that attacks Ukraine. It's the one that's now losing the war in Ukraine quite significantly. Mm-hmm. And we are worried, obviously, about the, you know, sort of the where Vladimir Putin might take this conflict. Because it's difficult to see how he gets out of it now, isn't it? You know, he promised a victory to remove the entirety of the Ukrainian regime. Then he scaled it back to, oh, I'm just going to take over a few provinces. And now the Ukrainians are pushing him out of those provinces, which he claims are now Russia. This is obviously not a, you know, kind of sensible way. Realistically, if you look at where we can go here, I don't think you're going to see a negotiated settlement because neither side can negotiate a settlement uh, when, when they, you know, kind of can't afford to lose anything there. So your best bet, Gareth, to get out of this is that Putin is somehow removed from the scene. And I, and I mean that, you know, if you look at how this likely ends, it has to be with Putin either dying or being removed from power by people in Russia who are appalled by either his incompetence or by the direction of travel. 
And don't forget that, you know, in the past, the Russians have done this. Uh, Khrushchev was a great example. Cuban Missile Crisis, he drags the world to the brink of nuclear war. He then loses the conflict with Kennedy, basically. And a couple of years later, the Politburo, you know, bring him into a room and say, it's all over, Nikita, off you go to a, you know, a small country, Dhaka, and we're replacing you with Brezhnev. So I suspect that, you know, that the way the war is, you know, being lost at the moment, there may well be people, uh, even on the hardline faction, who say this guy's failed us, uh, or a collective of people saying he's failed us, we've got to remove him. And I think that the likeliest outcome of this in a positive way would be for Vladimir Putin to, to be kicked out of office somehow, because that would enable a different constellation to emerge and for the yes. war to end, basically. So if the war ends, do you reckon, I mean, the amount of debt that the Ukraine is now under, even if the war were to end today, can the Ukraine come back and come out of all of that debt? Will they be able to? Yeah, I think I think they probably will. Um, it's not going to be an easy process, but I think because there'll be a big reconstruction program, uh, I think much like martial aid in Europe after 1945, if you look at what happened, you know, the US pumped billions into into Europe to restore economies that were completely dead on their feet, basically, after six years of total war, and managed to get Europe up and running very quickly within five years, essentially. So if you have a plan, if you have the, and the finance to do it, I don't see any problem with Ukraine coming back. Of course, it's been a terrible shock to their uh, economy and to their system, but they will, they will return and there will be a way that they can do so, but they need the war to stop, obviously. They can't, they cannot do anything in the current constellation. They've got to have their territory back, their country back, and the ability to make decisions again without fear of uh, Russian invasion. Alan, it's always terrific to speak Bef- to you. Okay, do you before want to throw you say goodbye in? to Alan. Oh, okay, go ahead, Paul. I w- have w- one question before you say goodbye to Alan. The World Cup, and I know this is, is not a Gareth type of question, but the World Cup is around the corner. What do you think England's prospects are? This is important. Well, it's an important question. Well, look, anyone who's an England supporter has known that for years it's dangerous to make predictions about England and it's dangerous to dare to dream. But, you know, we did re- we came so close, you know, in the last major championships. We are so, the team is still, you know, bubbling along there. We, hope springs eternal. We think it might be the time after, you know, how many years is it? Nearly 50 years, 60 years. You know, we're going to get there eventually and win the World Cup again and bring football home. You ask the right question. Wow. All right, I'm glad you got that question in, Pums. Um, and thank you, Alan. It's always terrific to have your insights into this uh, this really important stuff that's happening around it. Sometimes it's very confusing, and I'm sure not least to the to the people of, of, of Britain and to the Conservative Party and even to the Prime Ministers themselves. It must be very confusing. But thank you for, for helping us to understand The it. year of three Prime Ministers. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like the year of three Popes at one time. Really great to join you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Alan Mendoza, the Henry Jackson Society, um, and he's coming to us this morning live from London. Very good to have him and Feriel Hafiji on. It's been a very busy burning platform this morning. Pumi, uh, take a big deep breath and I'm let's... off to get, I'm off to get tequila, two shots, and then I'll be <laughs> up for the rest of the day. First thing in the morning. Sure. That's very brave. All right. We will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. Thanks everybody. That's the burning platform for this week. We'll be back with another one next Thursday. Cheers. Bye bye.